Hello there and welcome to the Broadcast Preview, the podcast brought to you by Minnesota United. Callum Williams here with some very special guests with me today. As always, the man with the ripest smile in Minnesota and the greatest grin in the Twin Cities is also just a little guy. It's Jamie Watson joining us. Jamie, how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you for the introduction. It can only go downhill from here. <laughs> uh, we have Mr. Tyson Hill uh, pressing the buttons for us as well today. Uh, as always, thank you very much. And a very, very special guest indeed joining us today, part of the Minnesota United coaching staff. Uh, he's an Open Cup champion several times. He's an MLS Cup champion as well during his days with Sporting Kansas City. I think it's safe to say he has the safest hands in North American soccer. Goalkeeping coach, John J.P. Pascarella. J.P., how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for the introduction. <laughs> Love it. I, I, I can <laughs> see. Maybe you could rival Jamie Watson now for the ripest smile in the Twin Cities, maybe. I, that's, I'm uh... always a happy guy. <laughs> I'm always a happy guy because I'm involved in this game in this club. So I can't ask for much more. JP, JP does a brilliant job of making everybody around him in a better mood. He's he's one of the best. We've been wanting to get him on for the long time for the longest time. So we're happy to have you here. And you two go way back from your sporting Kansas City days. So this one's going to be chocked full of good stories, I'm sure. And uh, can't wait to unfold them as the podcast goes along. Yeah, we'll have a think about that as we continue the podcast. The one, um, the most recent memory I will say from JP. Uh, Coaching the goalkeepers, which we'll get to a little later on in the podcast and, and various techniques and what you're doing with the goalkeepers on a, on a daily basis. But uh, I will never forget, I had just gotten myself a little coffee in the canteen at uh, the NSC and I was walking towards the training field <laughs> and I, I see a ball... Um, rise so high it came back down with snow on it and I'm fairly certain it ended up in St. Paul and all I heard was a word that I cannot utter on this podcast which came from your mouth JP um, you're a fairly aggressive goalkeeping coach I think it's safe to say uh, I am I'm loud but all these all these um, these things that you're saying they're all alleged no one actually saw it you were on the other side of the fence so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure it was actually me I would have to see video <laughs> <laughs> deny, 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 deny. It wasn't me. It, wasn't, it was you. I didn't, I didn't do it. It wasn't it. me. Yeah. It could have just as easily been fuller. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> could have that is very true, it. yeah. Okay, so let's move on, shall we? Uh, obviously, the mood is good at the moment with inside the Minnesota United walls, JP. And I think a lot of that has to be because of the recent form of the team, particularly in the Open Cup. Victories over your former employer, Sporting Kansas City, and then down to Houston Dynamo, winning by three goals to two. Uh, talk us through those victories and how Minnesota United were able to conjure them. Well, they were two very different games. Um, obviously, the first one being at home against Kansas City, the other being away. Those are the most obvious. Um, but the one against Kansas City was very different in the sense that I felt like from start to finish, we were in control of the game, which is somewhat surprising when you play Kansas City because mm. you're so used to them being in control of a game. They're a team that's possession-oriented. They usually have the ball. Um, you're awfully, often sitting back in a deep block playing against a team like that, uh, especially over the last number of years with the quality they've had. So I, I think we did very well in the game. I think we played on the front foot. I think we caught them at a time when their confidence isn't very high right now. Um, so we were a little bit lucky that way, but I thought our performance start to finish in terms of our, our defending was compact, whether we were pressing from the front or at times when we were sitting deeper was very compact front to back. Um, I thought we were very good in attack and we finished the chances that we had, uh, which hasn't been the case all season long. Um, so that I think uh, was a very good performance from that standpoint and being at home made it very comfortable. I think we've been very good at home in general. Uh, the next match against Houston was a very, very different game. The temperature was different. I think that caught a little bit, uh, caught our guys a little bit by surprise. I, I think some of them never played in that type of heat before. Some have, um, but many hadn't. I think also when you consider the fact that we were down two goals at halftime and ended up winning that game, it, it was a very different uh, type of performance. And I, and I think Adrian... And, and I know a lot of people, listen, we're all on social media. I know a lot of people love to batter him, which oh. I think is garbage because I see, I see what he does day to day. But the changes he made at halftime, the, the, the tweak to our shape and the substitution we made it right back completely changed that game for us. And we were all over them in the second half. And it's funny because we said to the boys at halftime, you guys might be tired right now. 
And that's often the case because fatigue is somewhat physical, but it's also somewhat mental. So you're down to zero, it's hot, you're away from home, and everybody looks a little tired. Everybody looks a little fatigued. Everybody looks like they might want to throw in the towel. But we said to them at halftime, one goal changes everything. Because now it's 2-1. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, we have a chance to draw this game. Your energy level starts to rise, and theirs starts to dwindle. And then as theirs is dwindling, all of a sudden, you may get that second. And now you're on the front foot, you're all over them, and they look like the team that's fatigued, and, and you can end up winning it late. And it's exactly the way the game ended up playing out. So it was a, a very interesting dynamic in that game. It kind of had a feel as the game wore on, to your point. You know, I was fortunate enough to be able to, to be on the call for it. And I think I, I said at one point, it almost caught me by surprise how as the game wore on, Houston looked as though the team that were starting to deteriorate fitness-wise mm -hmm. – and they were slowing down and everything they were doing. And, and Minnesota United were on the ascendancy and they got their just reward. But how much fitness and how much planning going into this did you know? Did you guys increase the workload going in? Did you back off knowing that we're at the midway point of the season? The guys should be fit. You're getting some guys like you know Chase Gasper who he got his first MLS appearance on June 8th and followed up with 90 minutes against Kansas City the week before. Like, What was kind of the... The mentality going into what you knew was going to be a tumultuous climate for the players to play in it's a great question because i think what we've done is a very good job of individualizing guys uh routines and fitness regimen uh and so we went in there with i think not only a fit team but a fairly fresh team which is what ended up showing in the second half the guys were fit enough to last in that heat for 90 minutes but they were also fresh enough that they were able to to sustain the pressure from early on to late in the game and throughout that second half. And as I said, I think part of it also is not just the physical side, but it's the mental side. Mm. And that from a coaching perspective is the thing that's most impressive. When you see a group of guys with that type of character that can fight through that and kind of understand how that dynamic works and how psychology works to your benefit, as well as sometimes it, it detracts from your team performance, but in that case, it was to our benefit. It was, uh, it was really great to see. It was really great to see. And I'm assuming now, JP, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the start of the campaign, all eyes were on the playoffs. Now things may very well have switched a little bit. No doubt the postseason is the aim, but is there an eye now wandering towards the Open Cup as well? I think from a coach's perspective, I, I can't speak for our fans. I can't even speak for our front office. But I can tell you from the coach's perspective, we want to win. And I know this sounds very cliche, but we want to win every game we're involved in, including the Open Cup games. Um, and I love that mentality. I, I don't like the idea of let's prioritize one over the other. Let's go win them all. And let's create that type of culture and that type of mentality in our locker room. And I think that's what you're seeing. So it's not, a, it's not really a surprise within the walls of, of the NSC. Mm -hmm. It's not a surprise to the players on the team. It's certainly not a surprise to the coaching staff. We want to we win the Open Cup. We're going to put a lineup out there that we think can win games every time we're out there, whether it's the MLS games or the Open Cup games. So it's, it's really not a surprise. And, and I don't think we've shifted focus at all, at all. Now, will it be difficult to do both? Yeah because of the extra workload and the extra games. And now we've just added another midweek game to our July, which was already busy. And if we win that game, we'll add another midweek mm -hmm. game late in July, which, which makes it difficult to do. But that's, that's the life we chose, you know, and that's the, that's the price of success. So I think it's, I think it's great. Talk to me about the, the mentality though, because you, you've won MLS cup, you've won the open cup as well, several times in terms of your mentality. What, what do you, Bring, uh, what do you say to the players, particularly when you play in these teams in the Open Cup? I've spoken with the players about this. I've spoken with the coaching staff about this, and I can only base it on my experience in Kansas City. We felt like in 2012 when we won our first Open Cup, first Open Cup when, when Peter was the manager and yep. I was there. I think it was the second or third that they may have won yep. in total as an organization, but the first that we had won together as a group. It taught us how to play in a knockout competition, and it gave us confidence to play both at home and on the road in, with those kind of stakes. And so come the 2013 playoffs, that success and being able to look back at that helped us in the playoffs. 
So, and, and so did the years before that as well, but we hadn't had the success that we'd had. In, in, in 2009, we didn't have success, 2010, 11. But in 12, we had all of that success in the Open Cup. And it carried over, it taught us how to be winners, it taught us how to play in a knockout competition, and it helped us come playoff time in 2013. I think that's important to, to have that mentality, and I know that the mentality within the game, you talked about the getting the first goal, starting to get the belief back. Go through the goals for us real quickly. I mean, because Darwin, Darwin had been in a bit of a slump, but then he gets two goals a week before against Sporting Kansas City and the type of fashion and form in which grow confidence, the one where he rounds the goalkeeper, stops it just before the defender throws himself on the line, gives it a little flick over, all the things that kind of breed confidence where you forget what maybe the, the previous seven, eight games had been. Then he gets the goal in the 66th minute. Great combination play with Angelo. And, you know, what did you see from that one? The second one where he drops an absolute screamer from 30 yards out and then Mason's first goal. What was the coaching breakdown and assessment when you processed the goals after the game and, and what you took away from those? The, the thing you can see, both in, in Mason and Darwin, in, in Angelo as well, and in most attackers, is that they're like... Um, the, the best analogy is they're like streaky shooters in basketball. When they're hot, they're hot, and when they're not, they're not. And, and that happens in every sport, but it, it becomes very obvious in soccer because a guy doesn't get a goal for a game or two, and all of a sudden he's a terrible player, hmm. or he scores a couple goals in three games, and he's the greatest thing since he's sliced He's a $30 million dollar player. When Correct. are we going to sell him to Barcelona? Correct. Correct. And, and, and really the truth lies somewhere in between both of those. But – but what you can't deny is how much a role of confidence plays in that. Sure. So the way that Darwin took his goals in the Kansas City game, and then you look at the goals he took in, in Houston, you can see there's a difference in, in the way he's playing. He has a little bit of his swagger back. You can say the same about Angelo. And it's interesting that Mason Toy scores, scores his first goal in Houston and then turns around in the exhibition game the other night against Madison, scores two more. So, and listen, that confidence couldn't come at a better time because we're about to enter a stretch where we play, I think, 12, 13 games over the next seven weeks, eight of them at home. That's a tough stretch, and we could have a game added onto that if we win our next Open Cup match. So that confidence is coming just at the right time. Yeah. With, with Mason Toy, JP, is there a sense now that he is starting to become a little more mature on the field? Because I remember last season particularly as well, watching so many sessions after the official first team training session had finished and, and yourself and Ian Fuller and, and Adrian and Mark Watson were all working with him separately, trying to get him to understand the timing of runs and, and perhaps body shape and whatnot. And I, I thought watching the Houston game, the goal he scored, he peeled off of the center half so well. I'm not entirely convinced he would have done that six months ago. No, I, I would agree with you. I think that's a learned response I think that the work the coaching staff does with him on his movement um, is paying off. I think that it will have to continue because it's, you know, there's not this eureka moment where all of a sudden it just clicks. It takes time. So will there be moments when he probably makes the wrong run? Yeah, there'll still be some of those moments. But will, the, will there be more moments when he makes the right run? I think so. And the more often he does that, the more chance he's going to have of scoring goals and the more we can supply him with balls on those good runs, the, the more goals we're going to score. Jimmy, you've been a, a young attacking player in Major League Soccer. Is there a specific time frame where we can expect to see something more from Mason Toy, or is it purely down to the player himself? Fantastic question. Everybody's a little bit different. I know for me, I was not necessarily a player that, when I first came into the league at 18 years old, much like Mason Toy, who's only 20, mind you, in the second season, um, I came in, turned 19 my first year, and, and I did a lot of things instinctually, things that worked in the past that I didn't necessarily have to overthink, overanalyze, really process and break down. And I think that is a, a blessing and a curse at times for young players because sometimes you get this unbridled, just pure instinctual moment in time and a moment of brilliance that comes from it. And then there's also moments where you act on that instinct, and if you would have taken a half second to think and look up and assess the situation, you would have made a better decision, and you don't realize that until the moment's gone. Because this is the difference at this level. It is these moments, if you take a half a second to realize it, 
the half a second that it was on and that it took you to be able to figure it out, it's gone. And then if you're able to figure out and anticipate ahead of time that this opportunity will prevent or will present itself, then that's when you get into that advantageous spot. That's when you get the goal. That's when you, you know, execute in the moment. And I think when you start to get yourself in these spells, and I think it's no, no coincidence, he's gone to Madison this year, and this is the benefit of having an affiliate, whether it's in-house, whether it's an external affiliation, he's getting in games now where you're, you're getting these moments that you can't replicate in training. Small-sided games, 11v11s, all this stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You have to be in a game, go through the ups and downs of that, and then you start to see these moments several times, and you learn from them. You get the experience. So when JP talks about having time, I know exactly what that means because with time comes experience. With experience comes wisdom, and you start to figure out what I need to do in these situations to be more successful than maybe I was in the past, mm-hmm. and that's why – you know, I think patience is important with Mason Toy. Can he be a great player? Sure. He's got the physical attributes, the size, the speed, the strength. He's got the willingness to run, the willingness to work. But now it's about putting it together and getting these moments. And when you do, learning from what you've done. Now he knows he's had a taste of success against an MLS team away on the road that gave him a, a game winner. I mean, take that feeling, put it into an IV, hook it into my veins and feed it to me. I mean, that is the best feeling in the world and it does not ever change, but you have to remember what you did to be able to get that feeling. And then once you have it, once you get a taste of a goal, you want more of it. You crave more of it. You'll do anything for it. And with that, Mason now has to figure out what worked, how can he replicate it and do it again? Don't just rest. One goal is great. Two goals the other night is great, right, JP? It's great. For sure. Do more. Yep. Score more. Do it again and do it again and again and again. And then that's how you become successful in this. If he looks at it and says, yeah, I scored a great goal. Look at how great that was. Let's watch it on repeat a thousand times over. No, watch it, learn what you did, and then go out and do it again. Correct. Replicate it again. And, and, and the thing I'll add to that is you mentioned all the things that, that he does and you see in him and the ability to be a quality player. The, the part we don't see is the mentality. And it, he has a striker's mentality because he's gone through some frustration over the last year and a half. Yet, if you watch him and his application in training and you see what he does in training and you see him staying after training, he just keeps going and he does the next rep and then he does the next day and then he does the next week. And what you don't see is what he does the video with the coaches mm-hmm. and how much time he spends on looking at, man, I should have made that run or the timing was there to do this, but I did that instead. So he spends the time, he has the mentality, he has the right makeup now can it all come together? And I think it will. I think the mistake we could make is that, hey, now he's scored, and we're going to constantly expect it. And I don't think it's going to happen that fast. I still think it's going to be gradual, but he's making the right type of progress, and that's what's great to see. That's the coach's mentality versus the commentator mentality. Come on, do it again. <laughs> Give us something to talk about next week, Mason. <laughs> uh, okay, JP, we're recording this on the 27th of June. As it stands, Minnesota United seventh in the Western Conference after 16 games, six, seven, and three is the record thus far. Question for you: I asked this to Ian Fuller. I'll ask it to uh, Mark Watson, Adrian Heath, when we have them on the show. Happy? Um, relatively, but not because of where we are in the standings or the number of points, but the progress that we've made as a club in the last year. That's, that's what we're happy about. We've acquired some good players along the way, which has made us better. We've acquired some knowledge on what makes those players work and how to get the most out of them. We have gotten some results by sticking with a process that we, thinks, we think makes sense for our club and for our team. Uh, so we're happy in that respect. I wouldn't say that we're happy and settled and comfortable because we want to push on we would love to have a home game in the playoffs, and I know that's putting the the cart before the horse. Is that the right saying? Yes. Um, <laughs> I know we have to make the playoffs first, and that's the objective, and then if we can get a home game, great. But it's it's moving in the right direction, and because of that, that's where we're getting some joy. And, and the players have grasped that. They have, amongst themselves, with the help of the coaching staff and the front office staff, built a culture that is a winning culture, is a 
um, a never give up type of culture, as you could see in the in the Houston game. And those are the reasons why there's some optimism. Those are the reasons why we feel like we're sitting in a decent place. But I say decent, not a great place. If we right. were first, I'd be much happier. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but but we're getting there. We're definitely getting there. Ian Fuller said yes to this question. Is Allianz Field starting to feel like home now for you guys? Yes, which it did not the first couple of games. Why? Because there's a certain rhythm to showing up to a place and, and having it be home. You, you start to get into a rhythm of what time do I need to leave my house to arrive at the stadium at this time? When I walk in the stadium, this is my pathway in. These are the stairs that I take. These are the, there's, there's a routine that goes on on game day, which on the road we have down pat. Because you have your team meal at this time, you get on the bus at this time, you walk into the opposite opposition stadium at this time, you get dressed, you go out for warm-up, so on and so forth. No one had that routine down pat yet for Allianz. We actually had it for the other stadium that we used on the, <laughs> on the uh, campus of the University of Minnesota, but we didn't have it yet for Allianz. And now it's starting to feel like home. You know when to leave. You know when to get there. You know when to leave on a, on a weekday versus a weekend because the traffic's different. All of those things are starting to make it feel like home. The crowd has always made it feel that way, but there's a routine up until the minute the game kicks off that no one was used to. And I think, again, it's a process, but everyone is starting to get used to that. The coaches, the players, the rest of the staff, everyone involved. When you start to look at it, right, I think everyone that listens to this can equate to the moment when they've moved into a new apartment or a new house. There's a difference between a house and a home. So the same thing, Allianz Field is the same place it was on April 13th when we had the first game, but that felt like a new house. Now when you go to the game Saturday against Cincinnati at 3 o'clock, you're showing up going, well, this is home because yeah. we have our, it has our character and it has the feel of, you know, the first win against D.C. United. You know, it's got the big moment of Ethan Finley scoring against his old team there. It's got these moments where you felt some pain where you, you lost a game against Philadelphia and stuff. So I think that from a former player's perspective, and JP, you've been on the sideline for, you know, countless years now. So it's it's one of those that you know the difference in that, but I think it takes that little bit of time to get that that feeling of this is our home. And I think that is now what's important. And as you look at this matchup against um, Cincinnati, but also San Jose, then New Mexico at home, how much of a difference maker does playing that those games at home versus playing on the road really make a difference for Minnesota United and also for most teams in MLS? How important is that? I mean, history shows, and, and this season is no different, you win more games at home than mm -hmm. you do on the road. It's easier to get points at home than it is on the road, and I think it's because of that, that routine. Um, so the fact that we now spend the majority of the next couple of months playing our games at home, and I think if I remember right, it's maybe 8 out of 12 yes. if you include the Open Cup. Um, that's not including if we win that Open Cup match and go on. I don't think that includes the Aston Villa game either. But that's a lot of games to be at home. And if we can start to build and generate some momentum, because the crowd's been behind us, the place has been packed and passionate every game that we've had at home, guys are starting to get into a routine there. We're starting to have some success there. All those things build. And if we can capitalize on all those things, we could be very, very good over the next couple of months. Whilst we're talking of Allianz Field, let's now talk about international football because we can now put the two in the same sentence because the United States, of course, opened up their Gold Cup campaign against Guyana at Allianz Field uh, last week. I was there as a fan and it was wonderful to watch. Jamie, I know you and I bumped into each other. JP, I know you were there as well. It was wonderful to, to watch. Um, and I would be stunned if US soccer didn't return to Allianz Field over the next year or so. There was a lot of people from US soccer saying some very nice things about the stadium and the atmosphere as well. But let's talk about the game itself and the Gold Cup itself, JP. Uh, one player that I want to talk to you about who has received rave reviews over the last couple of years is Weston McKinney. Now, I know he's only 21 years old, obviously came through the Dallas Academy into Schalke 04 and, and done well in the German Bundesliga. I got incredibly frustrated with him against Guyana. And he's, you know, look, I'm not saying he's a bad player. I, I rate him highly. I think he's going to go on to have a fledging career. But I did think against the opposition, I said that with all due respect, I thought he would have been better. I expected more. I got very frustrated because, in my opinion, he wasn't dropping enough to play on the half turn. The wide players then couldn't press because there was nobody to dictate. 
And I just think everything, at least the majority, was expected to go through him. And I just thought on that stage, he would be better. I expected more. Am I wrong to think that way? Or am I right to expect something of someone who was so young? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. And I hate to straddle the fence there, but the fact that he is young, and we talked about Mason Toy and, and youth and how you, there's a process to coming along. I think that there's a process to understanding how to play for Greg and within his system. He's new to that as opposed to some other guys that are in the national team camp that have been with him before in previous games, have been with him before on his club team. So they have a better understanding of what he's looking for. So I think it's going to take him some time. Um, however, with that said, I think there are high expectations on him because of where he currently is and what he's done in the recent past. So the expectations, whether we think they're right or wrong or irrelevant, we want to see great things from him. I think we probably will over time. I think he's a very, very good player. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see that game live because we were in Houston for the Open Cup match, so we were gone. Um, but I got a chance to see that team train for a week at our place. And it's interesting to watch him because he's bigger, stronger, faster than I thought, and even a little more technical than I had originally thought. And, and I don't know why that is. I think sometimes it's just it doesn't, it doesn't transfer on TV. When you watch a guy on television, then you see him up close, and you're like, oh, my God, the power and pace in that guy is unbelievable. Yes. I think he has an extremely bright future in, in the national team. I think he's going to be one of those guys that ends up doing really, really well. Um, for a kid that's only 20 years old, I think he's going to end up being someone that's, that's going to be very good for us for years to come. And also having said that, everybody is allowed a bad game once. Oh, while, of course. You know? <laughs> of course. Not when Cal's watching, though. If Cal's watching you, he can't go enjoy a game. He's got to actually break it down. Oh, yeah, and I know, It's I know. a curse, right? You can't watch a game doing the same way now. Can yeah, you it's, no, it's hard. You know, it's funny because any game I watch, I've been watching some of the Women's World Cup with my kids, and, and they always end up yelling at me because I end up dissecting the game, not from a fan's perspective, but from a coach's perspective. And you start asking questions or, hey, did you see that movement? Or can you tell me where the lines are in the game or mm. what they're playing, what system they're playing? And my kids look at me like, will you just shut up and stop talking about the Dad, game that way? Just, yeah, just let me enjoy the game for yeah. what it is. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it is interesting. It is, um, it, it, it's a, I get where you're going with the conversation because I think so much is expected of him. And, and oftentimes we have expectations of the players playing abroad. that are higher than the players we have in MLS. Now why that is, I'm not sure. Mm. I think they should be just as high or just as low as the expectations for the, for the other guys. But um, he, I think he's going to be a very good one for us. Very good. Well, another player, Jamie, who is plying his footballing trade abroad is Tyler Boyd, uh, recently come into the national team fold. And I think it's safe to say has arguably been the U.S. player of the tournament so far. Well, he was fantastic on the night against Guyana, two goals here at Allianz Field. And a lot of people in Minneapolis and a lot of U.S. men's national team fans around the country probably developed a little bit of a a liking and maybe even a little bit of a love affair with Tyler Boyd. You come in and you have that sort of mark within the U.S. men's national team right away. It's going to endear yourself to the fans. And I think the way he did it was uh, a manner in which he was very dynamic, unpredictable. He got his reward for a lot of hard work, but he put himself in a lot of good positions that were dangerous. And, and I think sometimes that may be the knock a little bit on a guy like Paul Ariola, who's not necessarily dangerous for 90 minutes at a time he finds spells in games in which he is unstoppable and and you're thinking his movement his pace his agility on the day is you know is great but then he kind of fades a little bit out of a game and and sometimes you start to wonder at the international level is that going to be enough and i think tyler boyd then starts to give you that impression you know a little bit older than mckinney as we were talking about 24 years old but he starts to give you that little bit of a X factor. Can he be somebody that pushes Ariola to have to be a little bit better on the day? Pushes the cha the the competition those those wide areas. You know, some some ask is, you know, Christian Pulisic better out wide than he is through the middle? Can Tyler Boyd be on the opposite end of that and develop a, a a sort of understanding that when Pulisic starts cutting across, can he be smart enough knowing that you know Pulisic has the ability to play 
dynamic balls in behind, balls that you don't think a player can get into a tight space he can. And if I'm playing opposite of Pulisic, I'm just wanting to run in behind. Right. Because the, guy, the guy's got this innate ability to seek a pass, to see a pass, and then to execute the pass. Tyler Boyd welcomed himself, on, welcomed himself onto the international stage with the U.S. men's national team in a form in which I don't think anybody maybe truly expected that hadn't seen him play in week in and week out, or maybe even knew who he was before this. But I think now we set the bar really high. And in an, in an era in which there's a new manager, a national team looking for a new identity, did Tyler Boyd put himself ahead of the curve of everybody with that start to the Gold Cup, with the continuation of how he's been through the tournament? And I just think right now, to date, within this tournament, you'd have to say him and Jossie's artists have been the biggest winners of the Gold Cup so far. Now, that can obviously change as you get better competition and you get deeper into the tournament with more pressure on these games. But those two have edged themselves out by a nose so far for me. And whilst we're talking about Jassi Zardes, JP, the United States were victorious over Panama um, in Kansas City during the week. A 1-0 victory for Greg Berhalter's men. The goal scorer was Josie Altador, which is a sentence we've uttered for many a year in terms of the United States and Toronto FC and many others. I think now moving forward, the biggest question mark is in the quarterfinals, who starts up front for the United States? So this is a guess. There's no, there's no inside information here. Um, but when you look at what is, again, from the outside, what seems to be the most important things to Greg Bearhalter, I would guess that it's Jossie Zardes that starts because he has a comfort level with him and a complete under and Jossie has a complete understanding of what Greg is looking for. And so I think it's easy for a coach to say, he not only knows where I want him to go in attack, but defensively, he knows exactly how I want him to help shape the opposition's buildup, where they need to be, where he needs to be in terms of his starting positions defensively. So I think that gives the nod to Jossie a little bit. I don't think anyone would argue that Josie's probably, I think it's hard to argue that Josie's not the better forward, not mm -hmm. the better attacking center forward. But if you look at the understanding of the way Greg wants to play, the system he wants to play in attack and defense, I think that Josie helps paint a picture for everybody involved. This is what Greg's looking for, and he can lead the line that way. Staying with U.S. soccer, let's move on to the World Cup, shall we, Jamie? Um, we are recording this just after England have thumped Norway, by the way. Get in. Come on, the Lionesses. Uh, on to the semi-final they march. Um, the United States play on Friday against France in the quarterfinals. And this game has been drawn up for a long, long time. I think a lot of people expected this game to happen. France, I think, have been very good. I've been very, very impressed with Le Sommaire up front. Uh, Renard at the back has been fabulous as well for France. Uh, but uh, no doubt the United States came into this with a lot of pressure and expectation, uh, quite rightly so as well. I, am I safe to say, Jamie, am I correct in saying that whoever wins this game on Friday between the United States and France has got a very good chance of getting to the final? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, simple enough. This match is worthy of a World Cup final. And unfortunately, we're going to see this in the quarterfinal. And everyone kind of expected that, knew that when the brackets came out and everyone said, right, let's play out the scenarios, how this would go if U.S. wins their bracket, if France wins their group stage, excuse me, um, the stars would align, they'd meet in the quarterfinal, which I'm excited about to see that match. But I'm also disappointed that we don't get that at the end because that is a match that, for me, the two best teams in the world right now. And I think you can make the argument that Germany – is certainly in the conversation. I think Norway, before Ada Hedegberg was making her stance as far as not playing in the tournament, had to be in that conversation. Yes. Once, you know, once Ada said, I'm not playing in the tournament, then I think, you know, Norway kind of slips from that conversation. I think you saw that today with England just absolutely putting on a fantastic clinical performance. This is the this is the team that whoever advances from this I think goes and wins the the women's World Cup and I think both of them have shown that they separate themselves from the rest of the pack. Uh, Renard for France has been tremendous, center back with three goals, and and looks dominant, looks intelligent, can 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 pick a pass out, can stifle an attack, but then can contribute on the other end. But when you start looking at the 
U.S. Women's National Team, you've got Megan Rapino with three goals. And Alex Morgan, while she's joint top scorer right now with, I believe, Kerr and, and uh, Ellen White's gone tied for the top with uh, her goal today, I don't think it's been her best best tournament by far. I mean, look, four goals against Thailand is the asterisk to that joint top score for her. But I think Rose Lavelle in the middle is playing really well right now. I think that for the women's national team, they have to win the midfield battle and they cannot make silly mistakes. I don't think the performance they gave against Spain was good enough to beat France. And I think if they can replicate the performance and the type of dominance they asserted over Sweden, that gives them an opportunity to beat France and to move on to the semifinal against the Lionesses. Juliette, for me, has been an unsung hero for the U.S. women's national team throughout the tournament. Um, but as it is with every holding midfielder across the world, JP, they, they never get the credit that they deserve. But And, and here they are doing their, their jobs and they allow the attacking players to go and play. And that's the one thing where the headlines, quite rightly so, have, have gone for the United States is, again, they've entered a tournament and not struggled to score goals. They're going to have to be a lot better in front of goal than they were against Spain, against France tomorrow. Yes, they are going to have to be. Um, and, and you make an interesting point about that holding midfielder, that, that person that sits in front of the back four. Um, because oftentimes in the modern game, the team goes the way that player goes. And the quality of the team pretty much rides on that position. Not, not in every system, not with every team, but oftentimes that's the case. And it, Couldn't you, agree more with you. <laughs> you, you. You can look at our team as a local example of that. The, the difference since we've had Ozzy Alonso playing in that position has made us a more stable team in build-up play coming out of the back, and we've been more solid defensively because we have a player there with a conscience that sits and holds and can help balance the team. So to, to say that she's been an unsung hero... Uh, I think is fair to say that we have to be better in the World Cup in terms of the attacking third, I think is fair to say. If you're going to have an off game as a U.S. women's national team, the game to do it was probably the other night. <laughs> um, so that was probably the right game to do it because if you look at what's left in the tournament, six, going into today, I think six out of the eight teams were ranked in the top ten. Whether it's France that wins it, whether it's the U.S. that wins it, whether it's England that wins it or Germany that wins it, they're all going to have to go through three or four teams that were in the top five, six, seven in the world yeah. to be able to win the tournament. I mean, when you look at it, France is four, USA is number one. So if we, let's, let's assume as Americans that we're going to win it, okay? Sorry for the English right now. <laughs> let's assume we as Americans are going to win this. We would have beaten already Sweden, who's ranked number nine, we would have to beat France, who's ranked four. We'd then have to beat England, who's ranked three. And then more than likely coming out of the other side, I would think is going to be Germany, who's number two. So they would be deserved champions. But so would England. Because if England ends up winning that game, they beat Norway. They would end up having to beat either the U.S. or France. France had to beat Brazil, who was number 10 in the world, to get where they are. So any of the teams left now, they're all quality. But as you say, if the U.S. isn't better in the final third, they're going to struggle in this tournament. If whichever team is the most solid defensively, doesn't give anything stupid away and can capitalize on the chances, the few chances that they create, because the chances will be harder to come by against the better and better teams with each passing round, that's probably going to be your champion. Okay, let's move on because we are drastically running out of time. Unsurprisingly, <laughs> the three of us only would talkative. struggle to talk about football for an hour. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the latest goings on in the Premier League, shall we, JP? Okay. I'm interested to get your thoughts, and I say your thoughts from a, a professional coach's point of view. We're all fully aware that Frank Lampard is being touted by Chelsea. I would be stunned if he doesn't end up being the manager at Chelsea within the next couple of days. So, Chelsea at the moment are undergoing a transfer embargo. Does this mean there is a little less pressure on the manager who also comes into this job with a staggering reputation having the career that he did for Chelsea? Yes. Does it make it easier for him? Uh, yes. Does it give him a built-in excuse, which ha initially starts him off with less pressure? Yes. Um, is he, in my opinion, a great hire for Chelsea? Yes. And that is because he's a great cultural fit for the team. He understands what Chelsea's all about. He's been there in good times and in bad. 
He's now got some managerial experience under his belt. He's played for some brilliant managers, under some brilliant managers while he was at Chelsea. I think a lot of things stack up in his favor, um, even though they have the, the, uh, the transfer issue going on. I think that he's going to be given time there. I think the fan base will accept him there. As I said, I think he's a perfect cultural fit and understands the dynamic within the walls there at Stanford Bridge. I, I, I don't think they could, they could get a better choice than Frank Lampard right now. Jimmy, you've been in this situation before, a young player trying to break through. I don't think there's a better time to be a young player at Chelsea because not only have you got Lampards at the helm, Jody Morris will be the assistant as well. And prior to joining Lampard at Derby, he was the youth coach at Chelsea. So he's firmly familiar with all these names. And the two that automatically hit the back of, of my mind are Tammy Abraham, who had a tremendous season with Aston Villa in the championship, 22 goals. And Callum hudson Adoy as well, who we saw a glimpse of towards the latter stages of the season. Got a cap with England as well, only 18 years of age. There's not a better time to be a youth player at Chelsea. No, you're right. And I think for Frank Lampard, who spent his youth career at West Ham United, then continued on to the first team from there, nearly had 150 appearances with that. He understands that from a personal experience, you can make the jump. So in his mentality, subconsciously or, or consciously, he believes that players can develop from within the academy because he's done it. Now with the transfer embargo, you're going to have to rely on some of that, even if it's for squad depth. Now look, Chelsea signed players and send 75 of them out on loan each year. So they've got a whole worldwide network of players they could recall and players that have been getting experience. So they don't have to be solely dependent on the youth academy. But can you start to shift the mentality of Chelsea as being a team that only imports, never exports? in the sense of they don't develop their own talent now. Frank Lampard can say, right, let's let's make this a club to play for again where it's a destination for young players within the youth academies. Because if I was a youth player in years past, why would I want to go play for Chelsea? Mm. I'm not going to – it's great to put on your CV and say you've played with Chelsea and you were part, you were on the books at Chelsea, but you were never going to get a shot at the first team. Because guess what? By the time it was your time to come, they might spend 70-some-odd million dollars on the guy that plays your position and good luck breaking in over that. Right, So now you've finally got a manager that can put an emphasis on that. You've got a manager, I think, that is such a legend within the club there playing from you know 2001 to 2014, I believe. You start to go, right, that's now a guy that knows what this club is about, genuinely has a passion for what this club is and what it can be and what it can return to be. And it's funny, we, I'm saying that with the, the mindset that they finished third in the Premier League last year <laughs> and got to the final of the Europa League but they still don't feel like Chelsea of old, a team that should be challenging for the Premier League year in and year out. So I think that to everything JP said absolutely was a great point. Um, couldn't agree more. And I think that this only is the this is the only real option in which can restore the mentality and the faith of both the players, the supporters, the club to what they were just a few short years ago and how they want to get back to that upper echelons of dominance in the Premier League that's winning that's winning Premier League titles or there or thereabouts at the end of the year instead of squeaking by into the Champions League, you know, on on the last day. Yeah, I don't I don't think any of us really know because Lampard hasn't been doing it long enough for us to be able to say what he truly believes in, if he believes in Academy players coming through or but if you look at his history, if you look at his pedigree and the way he did it, and the fact that he now has a built-in excuse at Chelsea to go that route, it lines itself up very, very well for Chelsea going in that direction. Mm. And it also buys him some time so that he can get things off the ground there. I, I think it's an interesting dynamic going on over there right now. It'll be interesting to see how they move forward. They've already signed a Mateo Kovacic from Real Madrid because he was on loan last year. The agreement was already in place. So technically, they do have a new player on the books, if you will. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing Hudson-Odoi. I think he'll get a lot more time because of um, Ed Nazard's departure off to Real Madrid. Um, but the one I'm really interested to see with Lampard playing the position that he that he did for many a year is Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who obviously yeah. had a spell at Crystal Palace on loan. And when he... Put the Chelsea jersey on, always looks good as well. Look good in an England jersey as well. So that, that's my two cents. I'm looking forward to seeing Loftus-Cheek and, and how he does. Um, let, let's talk about 
one of Frank Lampard's old international teammates, shall we, and focus things back on domestic football here in the United States. Wayne Rooney. Um, if you haven't, and you're listening to this podcast, if you haven't seen his goal from Wednesday evening for DC United, you have to go and have a look at it right now. Stop the podcast. No, finish the pause podcast. It, <laughs> pause the podcast. Go and have a look at it, and then come back. Um, Welcome was, back now. I've yeah. seen the goal. <laughs> it, it was simply supreme, JP. Wonderful strike. Question I have for you, being in the role that you are, goalkeeping coach, yeah. goalkeeper's positioning for you, okay? Yeah. I thought so as well. <laughs> Just had the discussion a couple hours ago over lunch with the coaching staff. We were talking about that goal, and we were talking about the goalkeeper's positioning. And when you see that goal, you really can't fault row for where he is. Based on what's happening in the game, where the ball initially is, way in the, deep into the final third near the goal, then it kind of breaks and it gets out. Rooney literally picks his head up and within three strides has knocked it over the top. You're not going to make up that ground as a goalkeeper. Your job as a goalkeeper is to stay high enough that you're protecting that space in behind your defense. And so he was in a good spot. Mm -hmm. It's just that Rooney hit an unbelievable ball over the top of him. And at the end of the day, that's what the game's about is great goals. And yeah. that was a great goal. And we're seeing a lot more of them now, particularly from distance, JP. Yeah. I think and I'm taking nothing away from the technique because the technique of the game has developed tremendously over the last 10 years, no doubt. But the ball nowadays moves a lot more. Mm -hmm. As a goalkeeper coach, how do you conquer something like that? Because every ball's different as well, right? So, uh, you know, if, if a centre forward is, is in on goal, they're right-footed, you expect them to strike it and go across the goalkeeper, you tell the goalkeeper to mainly maybe lean to the right-hand side a little early and all, all those kind of little intricacies. Mm -hmm. But with the ball nowadays moving so much, how on earth do you teach a goalkeeper to, to deal with it these days? You teach him not to cheat. <laughs> you, and, and when I, you know, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but that's the reality of it. You, you have to make sure that you're well balanced when you're in your starting position that you can deal with things left, right, high, and low. And the ball moves a ton. And, and you can see it just in the fact that goalkeepers aren't catching the ball nearly as much. And there's a lot of complaining by coaches that, hey, why didn't he hold that? Why didn't he hold that? But it's difficult now with the, with the pace that the ball struck, the athleticism of the players striking the ball, the way the ball is made and manufactured so that it's moving more. It makes it even more difficult for field players sometimes when someone hits that long diagonal ball across the field and you see players struggling to get underneath it and to judge it sometimes because it's moving so much. It, it's not an easy thing to deal with. Let me ask you about the Minnesota United goalkeepers so far. Obviously, Vito Minone is in on loan for the remainder of the season from Reading. Bobby Shuttleworth is about as uh, solid a second choice as they come in Major League Soccer. For me, he's a first choice for many in, in MLS. And we've got the young prodigy, Dane St. Clair, as well, who I know the coaching staff are very excited about. We're in a great place with our goalkeepers right now. Um, we have two that are currently top quality for the league. Both Vito and Bobby are guys that you could start either one of them tomorrow on almost any MLS team, and you'd be happy with that. And then we've got a third who is a young up-and-coming kid whose mentality towards work and training, his belief in himself, his understanding of the game, his, his ability to pick things up very quickly uh, has been something that's impressed all of us since day one. So we're in a, we're in a good place with the three goalkeepers right now. And it's very uh, ultra-competitive is the, is the word I would use mm -hmm. in training, which is what you want in a training environment. Yeah. That kind of competition amongst your own team is what you're looking for. We try to make every day in training harder than what they're going to encounter in the game. And the three of them have the mentality and the character to do that, all with the right spirit of competition. And when you're three deep at a spot, there's no, no place for complacency, is there? No, absolutely not. I think that's important to have, and I think Dane Sinclair is, is pushing both of the goalkeepers while learning from them, and I think that's important too because you're not seeing two older goalkeepers going, I don't have to worry about the third guy. I'll just teach him. No, they need to teach him, bring him along, but also know that he's got something special in him too, that they've got to keep their game at a high level so he doesn't push them to you know, give, your, give yourself a lot of th something to think about when it comes into Saturday. Correct, and, and I think that it, to be fair to both Bobby and Tavito, they have taken a lot of time with Dane this year. They spend time talking to him about the game. They spend time talking about moments, 
we do video before and after every match in the build-up to a game to talk about the opposition's attacking tendencies and things they do, and we talk in hindsight about a game. Here were the good actions. Here were the bad actions. Here are things that could be better and all those types of things, and they spend a lot of time, not only me, but they spend a lot of time explaining things to him and talking to him about it and getting his viewpoint, his young perspective on it, which I think helps them, but he also gives them or him their more experienced viewpoint on a lot of those things. So it's been a good combination this year. And Jamie, the significance of having somebody of the experience of Vito Manoni in this team. No, I mean, you can't replace experience. It's either you have it or you don't. And so, so many of the things uh, you know, somebody told me once that um, you know, advice is just wanting to make sure that somebody doesn't make the same mistakes that you did. So I think, you know, the advice that he gives is saying, Hey, I've learned this the hard way. So I like you. You're good. You're a teammate. I don't want you to experience the same mistakes that, that I've made. And I think that's important to note. And, and I can tell you this from experience. I've played on teams where when somebody's a direct competition to you in your playing time and ultimately your money, your career, your success, it doesn't always go that well. Mm-hmm. There's right. been guys that just say, I don't care if I'm supposed to be a mentor to you or not. If I give you all the advice and, and all the right things to say and do and you take that and you run with it and you're better than me and you now playing instead of me. So no, I'm not going to do that. And look, it's professional sports. This isn't everyone gets equal playing time. JP is a coach. You're going to put whoever the best person in is right then and there to give you the best chance to win the game that's in front of you. And so to hear you say that both Bobby and Vito are being great pros makes me happy as a former pro who's been on the other side of it as the young player and as the older player and a teammate that has had guys that don't care about you. And then I've been in a spot, you know, my last year, Danny Mendez and I, we would trade off in 2016. We were trading off who was making the 18 week in and week out. And it was based on who was playing, who was in form, all this stuff. But having said that, if Danny made the 18, it was, hey, good week. I'll get back at it next week. Good luck. Mm-hmm. And I love that about him as a pro. Okay, into the last 10 minutes or so of the podcast we'll go. Uh, JP, goalkeepers nowadays are being told and taught to play with the ball so much more at, at feet. Um, is that a hindrance to the game? Is it going to benefit them more moving forward long term? Where do you stand on this? Well, I don't think the game's going backwards in terms of the, the rules that have, have um, caused goalkeepers to have to change the way they play. Um, I don't think the, the quality is going to lessen. I think it's only going to get better. I think as players now grow up with the rules being what they are, they're all going to be more proficient with their feet. They're going to have a better tactical understanding of build-up play. So I think the things that you see in professional players like Ter Stegen um, or Allison, guys that are very, very good defensively, but just as good defensively, they are in build-up play as well and the ability to play with their feet. Uh, Manuel Neuer is another guy that comes to mind. It was kind of on the forefront of that movement. Um, I think that you're going to see more and more of that over time. So I think it's here to stay. I yeah. think it. I don't think it hinders the ability. I think it's just something that it's going to become a demand. It is a demand in the game today, and I think it's going to make the game better, yeah. more enjoyable to watch. The rules change next year. I mean, we've already seen it in the international competitions, but just the rule in terms of goal kicks and being able to play within your own box and the opposition being able to, to enter the box and defend against that, it's going to be interesting to see how that changes build-up play and also how it changes the way the opposition looks to press you. Because if they decide to step into the box and start to press there, they're having to cover more ground. And if they do that, can goalkeepers pick out the right pass? Mm-hmm. Can they break lines and get into, into the ball into spaces and places that, that puts the other team under pressure immediately. So it, yeah. it's, it's an interesting change in the game. Yeah, distribution is massive nowadays, isn't it? Um, talk to me about um, your favorite goalkeeper that you've worked with so far in your career. Um, well, great question because I have an interesting twist to it. Um, I've had the opportunity, obviously, to coach a number of different guys in the league. Uh, Kevin Hartman's one that comes to mind that I think was very, very good. Tim Melia was very good. Um, I think Vito is very good. With all of that said, I think the best one I've had so far to work with is Jimmy Nielsen. And I say that because he was the total package, not just in terms of a goalkeeper, but in terms of a quality person and leader. He ended up becoming our captain in Kansas City. 
in my opinion, was one of the big reasons why we won MLS Cup 2013, because he was the leader in that locker room. He understood what it took in a 10-month season to, to kind of ride the bumps that come along, and he kept the entire group at a place where we were never too high, they were never too low, and from, from that perspective, as, as a player, technically, tactically, but also as a leader and as a person in the locker room, hands down the best that, that I've ever had. The reason why I say there's a, there's a little twist to it is because I, I was lucky enough, kind of as a kid, I was in my 20s at the time, to work with Tony Schumacher, mm-hmm. who at the time was West Germany's national team goalkeeper. So I had a chance to work with him as well uh, for a few weeks. And that was an unbelievable experience to see someone at that level yeah. who's accom- who had already accomplished so much and how hard he worked and how diligent he was in terms of studying and understanding the game and just a sieve in terms of taking in information and wanting information. It was, it was amazing to see. And at the age that it happened where I got a chance to work with him, it was a huge impact on me. Mm. So it was those two guys I, I think about often, often. And, and in terms of a player operating on that level, who now, in your opinion, and, and people will say many a different name now, but you being in the role you are, who's the best goalkeeper in the world as it stands? Um, I would probably say Tristegan. Maybe Allison. those two I, I mentioned earlier, I think are probably the best two right now. If we're looking at the last four or five years, and I think that's kind of important with goalkeeping because you have teams that ebb and flow as well and that will have an impact on whether a goalkeeper's had a lot of success or not in a particular year or how much you might see them at the end of a year mm-hmm. um i think that you could look at manuel neuer i think you could look at david de gea um, i think you could look at jan oblak yep. who's not a name that you hear a lot because he's with atletico madrid and although they're a a good team i don't know that people would put them in the highest echelon of the game but those four or five guys, I think, are are very close to the top right now. Best goalkeeper that's ever played in Major League Soccer. Best goalkeeper that's ever played in Major League Soccer. Jimmy would have to be up there, Jimmy Nielsen. Mm-hmm. I would argue Tony Miola had a stretch in the league that was unbelievable. And when you consider the year he had in 2000, being a leader in the locker room with the, the old Kansas City Wizards. In fact, Peter Vermees was on that team. Kerry Vizivagnan, I think, was on that team. Um, all guys that are now there as part of the, the coaching staff. Um, Tony, I'd have to probably put up there as well. I'm sure there's a few guys that I'm, <laughs> that I'm missing. I had a chance and an opportunity to play with Jorge Campos in yep. L.A. I thought he was fantastic. Very different uh, in the way he played the game and his vision of the game. Uh, from a goalkeeper's perspective, and it was, I think, a little bit ahead of its time, uh, but was quite good. But uh, Jimmy and Tony were two guys that were were very high on my list. Nick Romando. Nick Romando was actually, that's a, that's a great shout. Another one who, in terms of longevity, mm-hmm. fantastic. Unbelievable. Start to finish. I mean, he was good early on, and he's yeah. still good. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's amazing to think that that he's been around as long as he has, and he's finally calling it a day. Yeah, it, I couldn't believe it. I nearly shed a tear when I heard that he was retiring. And yeah. it's unbelievable to see a goalkeeper that has been as consistent as he has, considering he's still only just an inch taller than Jeremy Watson as well, which is absolutely <laughs> wonderful to see. Um, and as well, I think um, a goalkeeper like that, I would assume at least, would have to change their technique a little bit as well because of because of the height or the lack thereof, maybe. Yeah, if, if, you, if you watch Nick, and I've studied Nick for a long time and the way he plays... His biggest strength, well, his two biggest strengths are one, his ability to play with his feet. So in build-up play is outstanding. And the other thing is his understanding tactically of the game. He reads the game extremely well. And so he gets to crosses that some bigger guys can't even get to. He gets to some through balls that some bigger guys can't get to because he reads it so well. Mm. But he's had to. That's probably something he's had to hone his entire life because he always lacked a little bit of the size piece, but extremely explosive, very, very good at reading the game. You put those two things together, tough to beat. Before we wrap up, a brief word on this week's opponents for Minnesota United, then FC Cincinnati, obviously undergoing uh, quite an intriguing run. Five games without victory for the expansion sides. 
they've got a plethora of absentees coming into this game as well. What are we expecting from them on Saturday? I think that what you will get from them is what you've seen so far this season. They are, I think, a very good team box to box. They are they're good in build-up play. They're good playing between the lines. They're good in terms of getting forward. Where they're not great is they're not great in the attacking box. They're not great defending the box. And at the end of the day, that's where you, you end up bleeding losses. If you can't score enough goals or you're giving up too many, and, and we've been in this situation as an organization. We've been there, so we understand it. You can be, you can be excellent box to box, but if you can't defend your own box and you can't score enough goals, you're going to struggle. With all that said, you only have to win the game 1-0. Mm. So they don't have to score a ton of goals to win the game. And we know they're going to be dangerous. They're missing good players, but they still have some very good attacking pieces that will be on the field. they still got some very good central midfielders that are going to be on the field. They're a tough opponent, and they're not somebody that we can look past. There's no one in this league that you can look past. And I know it sounds cliche from a coach, but that's the reality of it. That, yeah. that really is. The second you do that, you're done. JP, we could sit here for hours and talk about professional football. We could talk about goalkeepers and Major League Soccer, international football, all sorts. Um, but unfortunately, we run out of time. <laughs> so, uh, look, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And a big thanks as well to Jeremy Watson involved and, of course, our expert button presser, Tyson Hill, as well. And remember, you can watch Minnesota United playing FC Cincinnati at Allianz Field, the game on ESPN at 3 p.m., or you can listen on Score North and Sirius XM from 2.30. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to a Minnesota United production. <laughs>